but um, we've been praying it every, every week and, and just helping to uh, get us connected to what's true about God and what's true about us. And so let's pray this together. Dear Father, you have created me for your glory. I am not what I have, what I do, or what people say. God, I am your child, and no one can take that away. There's nothing I can do to make you love me less or more. Jesus settled the score so I don't have to hurry or worry. I am known, loved, and forgiven. Heavenly Father, I rest in your love while courageously extending kindness to others. Amen. You can sit. All right. And yeah, yeah I'm not going to have you stand up for a while, so you can get comfortable. Uh, okay, so a couple questions for you just to get your mind engaged with what we're going to be talking about today. And that is, um, how confident are you when you read the Bible that you're getting what God wants you to get? Like, how confident are you when somebody talks about the Bible that you think, is that what it really says? Because I've also heard this. And can you be confident? So that's one question. Another question is, okay, if you're a follower of Jesus, you know that part of your mission for living is to share, share God with other people. And yet when you read the Bible, it's like, wow, there's a lot of stuff in there. So how am I supposed to do this? I mean, I'm not going to mess it up. I'm going to forget something. Obviously, I'm going to forget something. And I mean, how do you do that? So we're going to try to um, get a little insight on those two big questions as we look at, um, continue to look at Paul's second missionary journey. And uh, we're in the book of Acts. And it is the part of the book of Acts where they've gone now past Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and now they're going to the outmost parts of the earth, which um, is Asia and wrapping around the Mediterranean, and they're entering into Europe for the first time. First time um, in the Old Testament or New Testament where the Bible is entering Europe, okay? So, um, so that's where we're at. We're going to put them, there you go. There's, this is his second missionary journey. Um, he goes through a place in Asia there called Galatia, and that's where he hit during his first missionary journey. And then where it says Mysia, um, he crossed over to Philippi, and that's where we hit last week, over there. And, uh, and then the three arrows, that's what we're going to hit today. We're going to spend just a few uh, minutes in Thessalonica, then Berea, and then all the way down to Athens, all right? And so that's what we're going to hit today. Go to the next slide, and you can see um, a little zoomed in. We were in Philippi last week. Now we're going to go about 100 miles from Philippi to Thessalonica, and then about 50 miles from Thessalonica to Berea, and then I don't know how long, because it's squiggly, from uh, Berea to, to Athens, all right? And so that's kind of the course that we're going to go on uh, today and following um, Paul. Now, one of the things that's interesting, if, if you drew an east-to-west line across that, um, that was the east-to-west trade routes um, from Rome to the east. And so you would hop on a boat. Once you, it's called the Ignatian Way. It would go from Rome down to the bottom of the boot of Italy and then jump across, um, what is that, the Adriatic Sea? Yeah, let's say that. Um, and, uh, 
and you would hit the coast of Macedonia, and then the Ignatian Way would um, go through Philippi. It would go through Thessalonica and then keep on going um, to the east. And so uh, Philippi was a, was a big-time trade city. Thessalonica, big-time trade city as well, as well. And so the first, in chapter 17, you have your Bibles, grab them, open them up to Acts 17. And um, the first nine verses have to do with, with um, Paul and Silas and Timothy going to Thessalonica. Now, one of the people, they, they left somebody there. They left somebody behind at Philippi. And we know that because as you're reading the book of Acts, in chapter 16, all of a sudden it goes from they to we. It's like, oh, the writer of the book of Acts joined them. That's Dr. Luke joined him. But then when it gets to 17, it goes from we to they. And so Luke stayed back in Philippi and helped um, grow up the church and strengthen the new church there in Philippi. So uh, Timothy, Silas, and Paul go on to Thessalonica. They do the normal thing. They go to the synagogue first. They start teaching the Jews. And then um, there are some Gentiles in the synagogue who want to learn, but then they go outside of that, start teaching more Gentiles. Same thing happens. A few Jews um, put their faith in Jesus Christ. A revival happens among the Gentiles, the Greeks. And, um, and then Jewish leaders get mad, and they get angry, and they want to uh, arrest and um, beat them, kill them. And so they're on the run again. All right? So now, chapter 17 10 through 15, they go off the Ignatian Way to a little town called Berea, all right? So they go to Berea, they start doing the same things in Berea. And verse 11 says, now these Jews, because they went to the synagogue first, were more noble than those in Thessalonica. Now if I'm Thessalonica, I'm going, hey, what's the deal? You know, what, what, what are we? What is he saying here? And they received the word of God. So he's defining nobleness here. They received the word of God with eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. And so he's saying they were, in, with noble it means to be open-minded, to not allow your prejudices to influence um, what you're hearing and in, in evaluating if it's truth or not. And so here's a way to look at that. They were noble because they were good students of the Bible. A good student of the Bible was eager. They were open-minded, but not gullible. I mean, Paul would teach them, and they would say, that's amazing. I need to think about this and see if that lines up with what I know the Bible says. And so they didn't have the Bible with them like we do. They had scrolls of the Hebrew Bible. And so... Um, they're recalling together, okay, is, does this line up? Is this right? Is what he's saying true? And really open to receive it if it was. And so they were good students of the Bible. And so this, that's what we want to be. We want to be eager. We want to be open, but not gullible. All right? Now, so this gets into the question of how, how do you do that? How do you look at the Bible um, because we are so confused because so many people are saying different things about the Bible and they're quoting same verses and coming up with different conclusions. And so how do you know? And so I'm going to give you um, some ideas. 
about how we can be confident that we're approaching the Bible in the right way, okay? Um, and let me just tell you, this is common sense, okay? It's common sense. Because when you go to any book, you use the same principles. But for some reason, when it comes to the Bible, we check those principles. Why? Because we're afraid. I mean, we go to the Bible and we either think, this is God's word. This is God's revelation of himself to us. And so I gotta make him like what I like. And so you go to the Bible really with your own idea of what you want him to say and so you use whatever methods you can to make sure he's saying what you want him to say. Because we all want him to agree with us, right? I mean, ultimately, we want God to like the way I'm living. And, uh, but that is not eager and open, is it? I mean, that's just bringing our meaning to the Bible. And that's wrong. God's saying, hey, listen to me. I made you. And so I may have some insight. And so, um, so we go to him and say, okay, I want to take the common sense approach that I do with every other book. The other thing that we do is we say we don't believe it's the word of God. We don't believe the Bible. We think it's all messed up. And so I'm going to just go and take stuff out of context so I can just show you how stupid it is. And so we abandon the common sense approach. So let me show you. How do you, how do you interpret the Bible? And let me just give you, there's... Um, you know, three basic ideas. The first is there's one meaning. No matter what, where you are in the Bible and what you're reading, remember there's one meaning. Now, what does that mean? It means I'm going after the meaning that the original writer wanted the original reader to understand. That's the one meaning. Does that make sense? So it's not, the question is, not is is not what is this saying to you all right what's this saying to you that's not the question because it can be saying all kinds of stuff to me the question is what was the original writer meaning for the original reader to understand that's the meaning we're going after any other book that you read you do the same thing you're going to say, okay, what is the writer, you know, what, what was he trying to get across to the reader? You don't go and say, well, I really don't know anything about the writer or the reader or about the time that he wrote it or the circumstances or anything like that. I'm just going to make up stuff as I go. And we don't do that with any other book. We do it with the Bible. Because, again, it's like, okay, I want, him, I want God to like me. I want him to make my life easy. I want him to say what I'm doing is fine. And, uh, and so we, 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 just, we abandoned the common sense approach. So what did the writer mean for us to understand? Second thing is we consider the original language, the history, and the context. Again, this is not new, all right? But we know the original language that the Bible was written in was not English. The Old Testament was written in Hebrew. The New Testament was written in Aramaic and Greek, primarily Greek, okay? And so... We need, if, if a word, in a, in a certain sentence, if a word is important to understand what that word means, then we have, we have um, 
books that help us understand. This is how this word was used in Greek, okay? You know, love is just a, a classic one. The word love for us. The word love for us can mean just about anything, right? You know, I don't know. Uh, I, I love pizza, and I love my children. And so we hope it doesn't mean the same thing. <laughs> you know, it's, but, but it's the same word. So what does it mean? Well, in Greek, there's a bunch of different words for love. Okay, there, there's, the, there's the passionate sexual word for love, um, eros, there, there's like the friendship, best buddy, brotherly love, uh, Philadelphia, um, philos, there is the self-sacrificing love, a committed self-sacrificing, that's agape, and so the, the language helps us understand meaning, right? Okay, also the context does, and we do that with every other book. We, we go, okay, um, I'm going to read this fourth chapter of this book, and I'm going to remember what happened in the previous three chapters, because that's going to help me understand the fourth chapter, right? And so we don't go to the Bible and just say, I'm just going to pull out this one section and think that I understand the entirety of the Bible, the entirety of what God thinks. No. We, we let the Bible interpret the Bible, just like we, like we let any other book interpret itself, all right? So we, it gives us understanding. So we're looking at um, language, we're looking at context, and we're looking at history. What was going on in the world? What was going on when this writer wrote this book? Who was he writing it to? What was happening in their life? What were the issues going on in their day? Is he addressing any of those issues, speaking to those issues? So what, what's... What's happening? Common sense, right? This isn't, you know, we're not saying, wow, we're making up all these special, you know, super spiritual rules to understand the Bible. No, we're just saying, let's use the common sense rules that we use with everything else and, and stop just picking stuff out of the air. And so let's approach it from common sense. The last thing is literal. And um, people get all upset about that word. Um, is probably the most controversial word because people say, ah, yeah, you guys are just so simple-minded. You're so literal. You know, it's just so dumb. It's just like, okay, the Bible says the sun rose one morning. And so you guys are literal. You think the sun really rose and the earth didn't rotate. So you guys, it's, it's wrong. You know, little approach is wrong. It just, it's just wrong all the time. You guys probably think the, the world's flat. And that's not what literal means. It means we're going to take it for the, what, what, what did the original writer literally mean in the common use of the language and the history and the things that he was talking about? So what, what was his literal meaning what, what what was what was the common use of his language and so if, if we heard that what would we literally understand when he talked that way and we don't have to go to any other hidden meaning he talked about the tigris and euphrates river oh that's talking about the body and the soul no if he was talking about the two rivers then probably he was talking about the two rivers Okay, and so, so that's what we mean by literal. Now, does it mean that we don't, um, we take everything literally, even if it's a dream or a vision or, no, we take it as a dream or a vision or a symbolism 
or metaphors or parables or poems, whatever the writer meant you to understand this to be, I'm going to tell you about a dream I had. Well, then we know that that's, that's, that's not history. That's not something that actually happened. It's just a dream he's conveying to make a point. Okay, so we're literally taking what the author intended. You, does that make sense? You following with this? Okay. That's how we're approaching the Bible. All right? Uh, and anybody who's using that approach, we'd say, you know what? I, I think you're, you're being a good student of the Bible. Now, is the goal of our study of the Bible to learn more? No. See, we, we can apply all those things, but if you don't also consider that the Spirit of God is at work to use the truth of God's Word to transform our lives, to know God more, to know who He made us to be more. So that means I am learning about who I am, my identity the person I was made to be, and how and why was I made? What's my purpose in life? I mean, the Holy Spirit takes all that information, the truth that we're studying, and then he uses it to transform us, to do, do a miracle in us, transform how we see ourselves, God, how we experience God, and how we operate with those people around us. All right, and so... Um, that's the approach. It is not a, uh, it's not unusual. It's common sense approach, knowing that the Holy Spirit then makes it uncommon in that it's transformative. All right, so are you following me? Okay. I hope so. I didn't, I didn't hear a bunch of, oh yeah, I'm with you. Okay, but anyway, um, I'm going to assume. All right. Um, so here's, I gave you how we approach it. Let me just tell you um, the ways we mess it up, all right? Because I think this is much more common, unfortunately, today, and that is we interpret the Bible wrong when we make it all about me. When, uh, when we approach it saying, God, uh, God wants, wants what I want. And so I'm going to prove it by finding it in the Bible. And so we mess it up. And so here, here's ways that we interpret the Bible that mess up what God wants us to actually learn and what God is actually trying to teach us. And so the first is life experiences, where we go to the Bible and we let our life experiences interpret the Bible. Life experiences are powerful, okay? But if this is, if this is God's revelation of himself to us, then we need to let him interpret our life experiences, not our life experience interpret him. Okay, does that make sense? Um, I may go through a life experience that is very similar to the life experience you went through, and yet our conclusions could be really different. And so life experience is not a good test. It's not a good bar for us to say, what does the Bible mean? Well, based upon my life, my experience says, nah, that can be deceiving. That can be deceiving. So we let the Bible um, interpret our life experience. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, very popular proverb. Um, proverb is wisdom literature, so here's wisdom, here's truth. 
Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will make your path straight or make straight your paths. All right? And so um, saying, you know, God is actually the bar. Another one speaks to the same thing is don't interpret the Bible in light of your feelings, your conscience, or your gut. Okay, what does your gut say? Just follow your heart. Oh, you know, sometimes that could be good advice, but also our heart is deceiving. We, we deceive ourselves, don't we? Um, ever been addicted to anything? What, what, what are you doing inside? I'm justifying and giving myself reasons to make it okay for me to continue this action. My heart, my conscience, my gut is deceiving me. And it's making me okay to continue on this destructive pattern. And we do that for a lot of things in life. I mean, if you have small children, just listen to them. And you go, oh, yeah, you know, what they're doing is what I am continuing to do. And so we, our own gut can be um, deceiving. Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4, my conscience is clear, but that doesn't make me innocent. It's the Lord who judges me. See, my conscience can be clear and I could be wrong. And so I'm not the bar. My conscience is not the bar. My feelings are not the bar. God's the bar. Okay, public opinion. What's everyone else saying? Again, our kids can teach us a lot in this. We just, you know, the old morbid thing. You know, everybody's doing this. Well, if everybody jumped off the cliff, would you jump off the cliff? You know, what, what a terrible thing. Terrible thing to tell our children. And, but, but, it's, but it has a point. It's like, no, obviously, no. And so we say, well, obviously, that is a wrong way to determine what's right or wrong or what's the Bible say about something. Everybody else says this about the Bible. Well, that's not probably um, good evidence for you to believe the same thing. Um, what's God say? What does the Bible say? Using that common sense approach. Um, Matthew 7, this is Jesus talking. He says, if you just go along with the crowds, you're going to miss me. Go along with the crowds and you'll miss eternity with God. And so uh, we, we don't let public opinion be the thing that sways us about what's right and what's wrong. Okay. Don't let your pastor interpret the Bible for you. Don't let me. Don't let, don't let your favorite Bible teacher. But you do what the Bereans did with Paul. Is you say, okay, is he, is he approaching the Bible in the right way? And am I following how, how he's getting the truth out of the Bible based upon the history and the understanding and the context? Um, and then is it making sense with what, with what I know is true from the Bible? And so you examine it. I, I don't like hearing, well, Bill says this. Hey, Bill's feet are feet of clay. You know, I am, I am not right all the time. And so we need to be good students together. 
and, and look at the Bible from a common understanding of what is the way we approach the Bible, and then we wrestle together to get the original meaning to the original reader. And then there's all kinds of principles. There's all kinds of timeless truths we can take out of that. But we're approaching it the same way. And uh, I don't care who you are, if you are a human being, then um, you're not perfectly understanding it. And I'm not perfectly understanding it. But I'm giving you the best I got, and you just need to look at the Bible and say, okay, is, it, is this, does this seem right? So they're in Berea, back to Berea. And many people believed, some, and some were Jews, um, but the Jews from Thessalonica, they, they just had a bulldog tenacity. They hunted them down, and they found them in Berea, and then they started turning people in Berea against them. And so now Paul takes off by himself, and he leaves uh, Silas and Timothy behind in order to keep working with this new church in Berea, and Paul travels down to Athens, all right? And so now Athens um, is the philosophical center of the world. You know, it was the, it was the conquering, uh, Greece was the conquering nation under Alexander the Great, and then eventually Rome took over and, took and expanded um, the empire. Uh, but even though Rome took over, Athens was still the, the thinking hub of the world. It was the philosophical thinking hub of the world. There were three prominent universities, or the most prominent universities in the world at this time. The number one of those was in Athens. The second one was in Alexandria in Egypt. And the third one was in Tarsus. Okay? Uh, that's where Paul was born, by the way. It was in Tarsus. And uh, he grew up in Jerusalem, but he was born in Tarsus. And so those were the three big institutions, uh, big universities of their day. And uh, Athens reigned supreme is where the great thinkers were and philosophers. And so Paul goes and engages the people of Athens. And so now we're going to learn um, and ask ourselves, okay, what can we learn about sharing the good news of Jesus with other people? And here's quite an audience for Paul because, man, he's, he's with the great thinkers of the world. And in verse 16, we looked at this last week, but real quickly, um, now why Paul was waiting for them at Athens, waiting for, Paul, or for Silas and Timothy, his spirit was provoked within him, and he saw the city was full of idols. So his spirit was provoked, and I just love that picture of Paul. He's just, he, he's walking around, he's learning about these people. And he sees Gods everywhere, statues everywhere, idols everywhere, temples to different gods everywhere. And he sees people um, chasing things that are dead ends and that are, um, uh, in, in his heart's breaking. You know, the, the same word that Paul used, or that's used here for provoked, provoked within, um, the Septuagint is the Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible, okay? And so in the Hebrew Bible, when it talks about God looking at his people, the Hebrew people, and his heart breaks because they've left him and they're worshiping idols. In the Septuagint, when it's talking about that, it uses the same word of God seeing his people walking away from him as Paul here looking at Athens. 
And see, in, in, in the Hebrew Bible, God was looking at his people who he created, and he said, you are my people, you are my people who I want to shine, um, reflecting who I am to the world around you. And instead, they adopted the gods of the world around him, and his heart is just breaking because he's saying, they've left me. I love them, and they've left me. And what's his response? I'm coming. You know, you make that personal really easy, don't you? In our own lives, how many times are we living independent of God, not thinking of him, or thinking of him, I know you want me to do this, but I'm just gonna go la, 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 and just take off in the direction I wanna go. And at that point, we're provoking God's heart. He's brokenhearted. And then when we stop and we realize what we've done, he's not there ready to spank us. He's not there ready to you know, stomp us out. He's saying, I've been following and pursuing you. And I'm ready to bring you home. And so Paul's heart, when he sees these people ignoring the God who created them and pursuing all kinds of things in life that are, that are going to lead to nowhere and disappointment, and he knows it, he sees it, his heart breaks, and that motivates him to go to them. And so for you and I, the idea of sharing the hope we have with other people, if it just stays in a, this is what God wants me to do, and I have to do that kind of stuff, even though I don't want to do it, we're really missing the heart of God. Because the heart of God says, I created you, I love you, I made you for a purpose, and you'll never know it, and you'll never know the God you were created to know. And his heart's breaking. And he's pursuing them because of it. And that's Paul's heart. And that needs to be our heart. We're not looking at people as projects. We're looking at people as people we love and we want the best for. And so we pursue them because we love them and we want the best for them, which is there's a God who created them and loves them and they may not even know it. So that's our motivation. That's why we go. And that's why... Paul went. Verse 18. A group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to dispute with him. Okay, you know Epicureans and Stoic philosophers. Um, no, I'll, I'll tell you a little bit about them. Epic, well, you know, what's, what's so interesting is nothing's new under the sun. We, we, our land is full of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers. And we don't even know it, but practically we are. Epicureans are people who, um, you know, if you do believe in the gods, I don't think they really care about what we're doing. They're not interfering with anything, and so they're just letting us do what we want to do, and really, ultimately, life and is, I mean, this is the life you got. And I don't know if there's anything after this one. And so really, enjoy yourself. I mean, um, seek what makes you feel good and, and what makes you happy and what's best for you and avoid pain. That's Epicureans. That, and, and their philosophy was really, you know, seriously, what deep purpose do we have in life? I don't, you know, I think you're making it up if you're saying we have one. And so 
let's just enjoy the one we got. So that's, that was that thinking. Then the Stoics were different. The Stoics were, um, we do believe in God. In fact, you're God, I'm God, we're all God, we're all valuable. Okay, so they had a, a view of humanity be, being of value and equal, but also that um, there, there's really no greater God than me. But they also held a high view of virtue, of character. And they said, so our, our end in life is to take personal responsibility and to be a good person and to grow in becoming a good person, be personally responsible to make ourselves better. All right, so there's a real morality, there's a real sense of achievement. You know, you pick yourself up at the bootstraps, there's opportunity, you can be what you want to be. Now go after it, it's up to you. Okay, Epicurean and Stoics. Man, that's us. We don't call us that, but we're practical. I mean, there's Epicurean Stoics all over the place in the United States, as far as that thinking. So that's who Paul um, is dealing with. So um, evidently, while he's talking to them, they're kind of mocking him, but he ends up getting somebody's attention because they invite him to the um, Areopagus, okay? The Areopagus is kind of like the, the city council of Athens. It is, in fact, I'll show you some pictures here. Okay, it's also known as Mars Hill. All right, so, so this is the Acropolis. That whole hill is called the Acropolis. On the very top, that building is called the Parthenon. That is a temple to Athena, all right? Where the arrow is pointing to, that's the Areopagus. Areopagus. I forget. A-R-E-O-P-A-G-U-S. I can spell it, I just can't say it, Okay. And so it's also known as Mars Hill, same place, okay? Mars Hill, and that little uh, hill on the side of um, the other place is uh, the Acropolis is where the, the civil uh, council of the city of Athens would convene, and so Paul, show the next picture, because now we're up on top and we're looking down, and that's, that's uh, Mars Hill right there, all right? Much easier to say. Let's just stick with Mars Hill. Okay, so that's where they're at. That's where Paul goes. Verse 23, and Paul gets up there and he says, for, I, for as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with the inscription to an unknown God. That, you know, there's debates over how many gods they worship, Hundreds, maybe thousands of God. What they're basically trying to do is, is there possibly a God out there that we're ignoring? And we better make a shrine to him and cover our bases. And so that's what they're doing. And then they're going, man, in case we don't know them all, let's just make one to the unknown God. And so Paul sees, okay, I got an opening here. Um, because you, you have a shrine to the unknown God, some, a, a God that you do not know. And I know that God. Let me tell you about that God. And so that's how he steps into the conversation. So um, to go, when the Bible says go, you, you are my ambassadors. Go take the good news of me to the world. Go means you physically go. You go to where people are who don't know that they're loved and pursued by God. But you also go intellectually. 
to where they are. You're trying to understand, what, what are they thinking? You know, what, what, you know, where are they at in their spiritual journey? What's their story? And so you listen. And so then, you, then if you have the opportunity, you can speak into it. And that's what, what Paul is doing, 24 and 25. The God who made the whole world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by hands. And he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything because he himself gives all men life and breath and everything else. Paul's saying the unknown God is the God. He's the creator of all. He's the creator of you. He's the creator of all this, this earth, humanity, everything. There is no greater God than this God. That's the God I know. And so right there, he's, he's instantly engaging them, thinking about a God they hadn't considered. And he's also engaging them as far as philosophically as how does this work with where we're at? He's over all creation. That means he's over me. There is a judge of me. I am not the ultimate authority. There is an authority greater than I. And as judge, he has moral absolutes that um, are greater than mine. And so this is speaking right to the Epicureans and to the Stoics. To the Stoics, it's, it's saying, um, hey, you're not in control after all. There's a God who's in control. You aren't the chief end. There's a God who's greater than you and overall who is the chief end. And so maybe you should stop thinking, I need to worship myself and start thinking, there's a God I need to align to and worship. To the Epicureans, who are relativistic in, in, in their view, it's like, hey, there is no, there is no absolute truth. Um, everything is relative. I'm going to do what I want to make me happy. All of a sudden, it's like, hey, uh, life isn't relative. There is a truth that's above your truth. And so what does that mean? And so, again, those are, those are thoughts in our culture today that, you know, my friends who do not know God, um, they're pursuing these things. And, and the deal is, in our culture, we're a lot of people are pursuing both of them at the same time, even though they both can't coexist. And, and we know it, and it's, it, it's interesting, but... Um, there's two truths that we hold dear culturally as values. One is um, cultural relativ relativity, okay? Uh, that I need to find my truth. And you have no, no right to place your truth on me, all right? We, we, it's like you can't judge me, I won't judge you, okay? We, we, that's a general value held in our country and in the West, all right? And so cultural relativism is, is there is no absolute truth. I need to find my truth based upon my circumstances, my upbringing, my culture, my ethnicity, all that stuff, all right? We say cultural relativism is an, is an absolute truth, which, you know, you can't, but we say it. Okay, so um, it's short-sighted and wrong to place your values on me or any other group. And yet at the same time, we have a belief in that there's universal human rights. 
All right, so I can't place my values on another culture because that would be wrong because I don't understand that, that culture. So how can I say my, my values are right and yours are wrong? And yet we do because um, there's some things they're doing that are wrong. But how, so how can I do that? It's like, well, you can't do that because it's wrong for you to impose your truth on somebody else's truth. So, um, so what do we do? We just follow nature? You know, where, where do we get, how do we do this? And so nature says, okay, if, if in nature, the strong survive. The strong um, take advantage of the weak. And so in humanity, is that okay? Is, this, is it okay for the strong to take advantage of the weak, the oppressed, the disadvantaged? Well, no. I mean, cultural anthropologists would tell you, no, that's wrong. It's natural, but it's wrong. So we sing the natural laws are broken? Well, yeah. So what laws, where do we get this idea that we should protect the rights of a person who's being taken advantage of? I don't know, but it's true. Well, how does that work in cultural relativity? I don't know, but it's true. And I, I've read papers on this you know, where people are trying to justify it. And their bottom line is they're, they're saying, um, I don't know how we can come up with the truth, an absolute truth regarding human rights, but they're there. And so Epicureans don't have it, Stoics don't have it. And Paul's saying there's a transcendent God who created all and is over all, and there's truth outside us that come from God. Bad news for the Stoics who are self-sufficient. Hey, God doesn't need you. You need God. Bad news for the Epicureans who will one day stand before the God who created them for a purpose. And then he moves from philosophical to personal. And he said, this transcendent God is also imminent. Is that he's near you and he wants you to know him. Now I have a decision. Not, as, not only just some philosophical thoughts that I'm, I'm wrestling with, but now I have, a, I have a personal responsibility. How am I going to respond to God? And then he talks to him about Jesus. Verse 33 and 34, wrapping up. Um, so Paul went on, or went out from their midst, but some, of, but some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysius um, and a woman named Damaris and others with them. And so some responded. Now what's interesting, Paul leaves there and he goes to Corinth. In Corinth, he, later on, he writes a letter back to the church in Corinth that he establishes. And this is what he said. Um, he goes to Corinth after just speaking with some of the greatest philosophers in the world. And he said, what are lessons learned about trying to share Jesus with others? And this is what he says in Corinth um, to Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 1, really through 5, but I'll just do the first couple verses. 
And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided, or I decided to know. For I decided. It's like he's saying, okay, I just had a really incredible experience in Athens where I was speaking to the greatest minds of our day. And here's what I learned. That, that I need to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. He's saying at the end of the day, man, I just need to keep it simple. I just need to keep it simple. So for you and I, as we're thinking, how can I share the hope that I have? The first question is, can you share the hope that you have? Why is your hope in Jesus? Can you share your story? I mean, think about it. Write it out. Try to get it so concise where you can share your story in three minutes. If you can share your story in three minutes about this is, this is why my hope is in Jesus. I was this, I thought this, this is what my life was. This is the point where I understood who Jesus was and this is when I surrendered and that now here's what it looks like. You know, why is your hope in Jesus? So do you know your story? Here's the other thing that Paul learned is people respond to Jesus because of their openness to God and God's work in them, not because of my eloquence. He says, I came to you proclaiming the testimony of God, you know, not with lofty speech or wisdom. I just kept it simple. And really, you know, Pastor Marty used to say all the time, our responsibility is just to share the truth of God, to share our hope with others, and you leave the results to God. If somebody wants to learn, they'll learn. If somebody isn't interested in learning, they're not gonna learn. That's not up to you. Our responsibility is just to share the hope we have and keep it simple. Um, Romans 6.23 is also a great way to keep it simple. Learn that verse. Go online, go into navigators.com, I think, or navigators.org, and one verse evangelism. If you learn Romans 6.23, you can share the hope you have in Jesus because it's just, it's just full of truth, just in that one verse. Romans 6.23. All right, how's your passion for people around you? And to share the good news of him. Is it reflecting the heart of God for you? Or is it a burden, a to-do, homework that God wants me to do? We pray that God helps us to see people around us like he sees them and like he sees us. And then let's be good students of the word of God and approach it in a common sense approach, trusting the Holy Spirit's gonna take the truth and it's gonna be transformative in our lives. Let's pray together. And today, uh, you know, just pray to God and just cement the thing that you've been learning from him. You just talk back to God and say, God, this is what I learned today and, th and this is what it means to my life and how I see myself, how I see you.
And then if there's anybody here who's at the point of, um, I need to step across the line. I believe in God. I know he loves me and he's made a way for me to be forgiven. And I just need to declare my trust in him. If that's where you're at, then just, let's just pray right now and talk to God about that and say, God, um, today I put my trust in you. I know you love me. You created me. You made me for a purpose. And so now I ask you to forgive me. And would you begin just working in me to know you more, the real you, who you say you are, and also to understand the person that I am, that you made me to be. Help me to grow up into that. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. If you just played along with me, you can do me a, a, a quick favor, and that is as soon as we're done, go outside these doors here. In the middle, there's a, there's a center station, and just let them know, hey, today I prayed along with Bill, and uh, evidently you have some for, something for me. And, and what we do is we just have some information for you to help you understand the commitment you just made, and um, it just, just some verses to reinforce the stuff that you just talked about and just talked to God about. And also, um, how do you begin growing? How, how, does, how do you begin nurturing this new relationship with God that you have? And so that information is available to you, those online who are with us and watching. If you prayed along with me, go to rollinghills.org slash next steps and uh, give us your information, how we can get a hold of you, and we will get that information to you as well. Thanks.